0: Lamps, the big lamps, the one that went oh, all way very really high, the four golden lamps. This oil's for that. So this year was pretty amazing. First day, I delivered the oil, they lighted, and when they light the lamps, the whole city is lit up at night. It was amazing. everyone singing and dancing. I got to watch. For the rest of the couple of days, I was too busy delivering the oil so I didn't really see what happened. But you guys heard about the last day, right? The last day. I thought the last day was gonna be nice and quiet because they don't light the lamp on the last day. But what happened was I was looking, I saw Jesus in the courtyard and he said, I am the light of the world. And this really blew my mind because I've been thinking about light all week. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world, as if he was the lamps, right? Remember what the lamps represent? The lamp represents how Jesus, how God is gonna give us, send us to freedom and joy, how he's gonna lead us the way. Just like in the desert, there was the pillar of fire leading the Israelites, our forefathers out of the desert. No, Jesus saying he's the light of the world, he's saying he's the pillar of fire, he's gonna lead us out. Wow, when Jesus said that, the Pharisees blew their top. It was amazing. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't be in darkness. If you follow me, you'll be in light. If you follow me, you'll have life. Wow, Cousin David, I've been thinking about that. That's pretty amazing stuff, right? So I was thinking, this Jesus, he said he is the bread of life. Then he said, he is the light of the world. So the light of the world. (laughs) Special effects. Jesus is the light of the world. And all he asks us is to follow him. So can it be true? that Jesus will fill hearts with his truth, but also lead us to God by being the light of the world? Right? Will you follow Jesus? I think I will. But I'm gonna find out more about who this Jesus person is. He has such amazing things to say. So what my grandmother says, when you have to decide where to go, you know what you do? You pray. So open them, shut them. Oh, God, lead us to your light. Oh God, lead us to your light. Open them, shut them. Send us where it's bright. Send us where it's bright. <laughs> this is a very hard to figure out. Okay? <laughs> open them, shut them. Give your hands a clap. Open them, shut them. Fold you in your lap. Let's pray. Dear God, Thank you that you have reviewed yourself as a great I am. You showed us that you are the bread of life. You have shown us that you are the light of the world. And we look forward to find out more about who you are. But the message is clear. You ask us to follow you, and we will have life. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, all the kids are dismissed. We can go to the CM room. You can follow me. Our scripture reading for today is 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. Listen now to the word of the Lord. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, give to the the men that they may eat. But his servants said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them. And they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: the lord be with you thanks let's pray together god we thank you again for this day that you have made and now in the hearing of your word uh, help us to open our hearts that we may delight in what you have for us and in that hearing help us to obey we thank you and we pray these things in the name of jesus christ our risen lord amen In sports, music, the movies, and even Pokemon, there are those who are immediately and widely recognized, and deservedly so, for their greatness, for their accomplishments. Michael Jordan, Simone Biles, The Beatles, Meryl Streep, The Shawshank Redemption, and Pikachu. Then there are those, for whatever reason, are underrated, nearly forgotten, and not given the kind of attention and accolades that they deserved based on their accomplishments. The Buffalo Bills, Steve Tasker, the singer and guitarist, Brittany Howard, the actress, Tilda Swinton, the movie Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and my favorite Pokemon, Snorlax. Snorlax is great, because when my kids were little and they wanted to play Pokemon and do Pokemon battle all day, I would tell them, Daddy's gonna be Snorlax, and Snorlax has to take a nap. In the Bible, similarly, there are prophets like Daniel, Elijah, and Jonah, not to be confused with Young's family, whose writings and exploits are well known. We also have children in our church with the names of other prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nathan, and even the minor prophet Micah. And when we dress up for the children's ministry, we choose the name of Jeremiah or Jerry. But I don't think I've ever met anyone named Elisha. When I ask my family, why doesn't Elisha get more attention? One of my kids, or rather, one of my young adults still nesting with us, replied, Because the bears. Might surprise you, but there are more miracles attributed to and associated with Elisha than any other person in the Bible other than Jesus and perhaps Moses. He was by far the greatest wonder worker of his day, and yet he remains overshadowed by Elijah. He's underrated, underappreciated, and unpopular because the bears. It's one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. Almost immediately after Elisha began his ministry, a group of young boys taunted him. They jeered at him. They insulted him, making fun of his baldness. They said to him, Away with you, baldy! Away with you, baldy! It might be that his baldness was a sharp contrast to the very hairy Elijah, his mentor. And maybe that's why they picked on him. You would think that a prophet of God, especially one who's carrying the mantle of Elijah, who's been empowered with a double helping of the spirit, would have thicker skin. But in response to those taunts, He turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. I mean, it's a pretty gruesome scene. According to Robert Alter, this incident so scandalized the rabbis that they felt constrained to answer that it never really happened. They claim that there is neither forest nor bears between Jericho and Bethel where this incident supposedly took place. And so the phrase neither bears nor forests has become idiomatic in Hebrew to mean something totally false, something without any truth to it. Neither forest nor bears. But the bears and the forests are here in our scriptures. It might make us wonder about Elisha's character, his fitness to be a prophet of God, the God of life. But we can't just wish the passage away. If nothing else, perhaps it's another reminder that all of us, prophets, men of God included, are susceptible to hurt, to insults, to abuse our power, and terrible decision making. Now, our reading this morning is the last in a series of five miracle stories in chapter 4 regarding Elisha. In the first miracle, Elisha enables a destitute widow to fill every available jar with oil, which she is then able to sell off to pay her debts and keep her children from being sold off into slavery. In the second miracle, a childless couple is given a son. In the third miracle, that son dies unexpectedly from an illness and is raised back to life. In the fourth miracle, in a season of famine, Elisha detoxifies a stew that had been inadvertently poisoned. And in the fifth miracle, which you just heard, there is a miraculous feeding of the hundred. Now, I suppose, compared to raising a child from the dead, earlier in the chapter, or compared to what Jesus did in the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, the feeding of the 100 may seem like small potatoes. It just barely qualifies as a miracle. And maybe that's why it only gets three verses compared to the 20 that the story of the child being raised from the dead gets. We are told that an unidentified man from Baal Shalisha brought some food. According to the previous miracle, Elisha and the others are still living in a time of famine and food is scarce. And so this is a significant gift. We don't know the name of the man, but the name of the town that he comes from is suggestive. Baal means lord or master, and it's the name of the local deity. Shalisha has the root for which, uh, for the number three. And it can also mean multiplicity. And so while it's uncertain, Baal Shalisha may mean something like Baal, or the Lord, multiplies. It may be that it is a place that worships or is a center of worship for the local Canaanite deity, Baal. So the question becomes, will the Lord multiply or will Baal multiply? Now, the first fruits that the man brings consists of 20 barley loaves and a sack of grain. It's unclear how large these loaves of bread are or how large the sack is, but it appears that the servant of Elisha thinks that it is certainly not enough to feed 100. How can I set this before 100 men? According to some scholars, based on the parable Jesus tells in Luke 11, it may be that typically three loaves were eaten during a meal. If so, they would have needed 300 loaves, not 20, to adequately feed the men. Imagine inviting 15 people over to your house. And when they've all sat down, all you have to set before them is one hamburger. You'd be mortified in that situation. Servant, I think, is similarly and understandably embarrassed to set such a small amount of food before a 100. But Elisha twice insists that it is enough. In fact, he says, it's more than enough. And the second time, he repeats his words. He says, give to the men that they may eat with the additional words, for thus says the Lord They shall eat and have some left over. The issue for the servant was the lack of food. But as Elisha sees it, it's the lack of faith. The same thing happened, you remember, with Jesus and his disciples. When Jesus saw crowds of thousands and he told his disciples, you give them something to eat, his disciples responded, how? How can we feed so many? Even if we had hundreds of dollars, where would we even buy that amount of food to, fit, to feed so many? For most people in the world, this is the basic approach toward life. It's built on a philosophy of scarcity. There is not enough for everyone. Twenty dinner rolls, small dinner rolls, cannot feed a hundred but it could feed Elisha and me. It's enough for the two of us. There isn't enough for everyone, but if I hoard it, there's enough for me. So fear and greed drives everyone to cheat and to hoard and to take whatever they can for themselves because there is not enough for everyone. Everything from college admissions, to toilet paper, to squish mallows, which I just learned about, to the last Boston cream donut in the box, to chocolate-covered cicadas. Okay, maybe not that last one, and I know I'm over my cicada illustration limit. (laughs) But if it's true that there isn't enough, then it's understandable that everyone would be desperate to grab as much as they can for themselves but faith takes a different approach rather than thinking in terms of scarcity we are called to trust God and to believe that there is an abundance that there is enough not only for me but for everyone and not just enough but leftovers faith trusts God to provide abundantly For all. And as in Jesus' feeding of the multitudes, once the servant obeys and sets the food before the hundred according to the word of the Lord, despite what his eyes see, despite his perspective on what's going on, he discovers that in fact there is enough, and as promised, there are even leftovers to be collected according to the word of the Lord. I want to make two reflections with you this morning regarding this passage. First is that it's quite significant that this man brought the first fruits to Elisha, the man of God, rather than to someone else. According to Leviticus 23, the Lord told Moses, "Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land that I am giving you and you reap its harvest, Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain of your harvest. The idea of first fruits was to acknowledge that harvest and life itself was ultimately dependent on God. That the land and all that it produces ultimately belongs to God. And so at every harvest, you would bring the first of your crops, a small portion of that, to the priest to acknowledge that, to honor God, to thank God. And then the priest would take that offering and he would burn it to God as an offering. That's what was supposed to be ordinarily done. But Elisha is living in unordinary times. There was not only famine in the land, but he lived during a time when the kings of Israel were not following God. And so it may be that temple worship has been disrupted Or for whatever reasons, the first fruits are brought not to a priest, not to the temple, but to Elisha in the woods. Early in the sermon, I said that the servant was likely embarrassed to serve so little food to such a large company. But it's also possible that his objection was not that there wasn't enough, nor that he was driven by self-preservation to withhold that for himself, but that he was being told to serve something that ought to have been reserved for God and God alone. Maybe he's conscientious about this law, that this is supposed to be an offering to God and should have been brought to a priest. The objection might remind you of a story of, of what King David once did. When David's life was once threatened by King Saul and he had to run away, he once asked a priest for some food. And the priest didn't have any regular food, but he did have some holy bread. What we might think of as communion bread, the bread of the presence, that David and his men were not ordinarily allowed to eat. But in that emergency situation, he and David deemed it appropriate and he took action that ran contrary to normal practice and ate the food. Likewise, Jesus used that illustration to defend his disciples from the accusations of the Pharisees when they said that they were breaking the law by going through the grain fields and plucking grain and eating on the Sabbath. And Jesus quoted from Hosea 6 in their defense, I desire mercy and not Sacrifice. I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. It's a lesson that Elisha also learns in this moment. Remember, he's been empowered by the Spirit. Not to curse, but to bless. Not to destroy life, but to bring life and to sustain life. And here in a time of famine, God himself instructs Elisha to serve those who are hungry with the first fruits that were meant for God. The first fruits which were brought to acknowledge God as the giver of life. God gives back to be used by Elisha to sustain the lives of those who are hungry. It seems to me that everyone, including God, is breaking or bending the rules Here in obedience to a higher command, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I don't expect you to remember, but almost a year ago, I gave a sermon about communion, and I shared with you the advisory opinion of our denomination. It read in part, quote, in emergency circumstances, there may be situations in which the pastoral needs of that moment require that the church take actions that run contrary to normal practice. During an emergency or a pandemic in which the church is unable to gather or advised not to gather in person for reasons of public health, a congregation's session may determine that this includes observing communion online. And I think that is consistent with what the scriptures teach and what I see here in this story of Elisha. Under emergency circumstances, like a famine or a pandemic, it is permissible, according to the word of the Lord, to go outside of normal practices as we pursue compassion, mercy, and care for one another. Now, back then, I told you that while it was permissible to observe communion online, I thought it best to wait until we could once again regather physically together. I wanted to follow the advice of the Apostle Paul in his pastoral letter to the Corinthians. In regarding another matter, he said, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Remember? Maybe a few of you. And so we have been waiting for one another to gather together until we can eat together once again. Well, I believe that time is now here. And I want you to know that beginning next Sunday, we will resume serving and celebrating weekly communion. As the capacity limits for this building have been lifted and everyone is allowed to gather I believe we can hold weekly communion services once again. Now I know that some of you are on Zoom with us right now and will continue to do so and that you remain uncomfortable gathering in person and I understand you. And I want you to know that as a temporary measure under these emergency unusual circumstances that you can still participate from home if you like. So next week, for those of you joining us online on Zoom, for the sake of unity, I'm asking you at home to set aside some grape juice and a small piece of bread or a wafer before the worship service starts so that when we have communion, you can join us for that part of the worship service. I am asking you to prepare those elements before the service begins. Before the service begins. Please, please, do not go to your refrigerator in the middle of the sermon to grab something from the fridge at the last moment because you forgot about communion. Let me say that again. Please, please, Do not go to your refrigerator in the middle of the sermon, in the middle of the service, to grab whatever you can find in the fridge because you forgot to prepare something for communion. If you forget that Sunday, I just ask you to forgo communion that week. While it is just bread and juice, it is also the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask that you handle and prepare the elements with respect. I would even ask you to pray and to wash your hands before you set the elements on a table near you. And after the service, if you have leftovers, please finish them at a later time rather than throwing them away disrespectfully into the garbage. Now for those of you who will be here in person next Sunday, I want you to know that we're going to use pre-packaged elements. It may feel a little bit like getting takeout, but for now, for the sake of those who may feel uncomfortable or uneasy about sharing from a common plate, we thought it best to do it this way. Now again, none of this is optimal. This is not what we would ordinarily do. But given the circumstances, it seemed best to us that this is the way to proceed. And so I would ask for you to all to join me as we celebrate communion and to continue to be patient and understanding as we resume communion. The second reflection I want to make is this. We notice here in this story that first fruits lead to leftovers. Leftovers, as I mentioned last week, uh, two weeks ago, is a sign of abundance. And for us, I know it's easy to throw away leftovers because we have so much food. But for most of the world, and for those in our reading today, under a famine, leftovers might be the difference between life and death. We pray that God would give us this day our daily bread, but God, in the form of leftovers, reminds us that he will provide not only for today, but for our tomorrow as well. Now, I am not suggesting that we bring our first fruits or our acts of obedience and faith in order to manipulate God into giving us an abundance of leftovers. That is, this is not about some false gospel, which is no gospel at all of, of prosperity. But the general principle is here that leftovers and abundance becomes possible when someone starts the process of faithfulness to the Word of God. In this case, it was the faithfulness of some unknown man who brought the first fruits, which then led to the faithfulness of Elisha in obeying the word of God to share those first fruits, which then led to the servant setting that food before the presence of the hundred, which then led to those men being fed and filled, and then having leftovers. Even though the man lived in a place which suggests that it might not have been possible to have faith. Even though he lived in the center, perhaps, of Baal worship, he was able to be faithful, even under anti-faith conditions. He was able to act in faith. Likewise, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he also began with barley loaves that a young boy had brought the former Archbishop Desmond Tutu said this, the divine miracle requires the thoroughly inadequate human contribution. The divine miracle requires the thoroughly inadequate human contribution. The miracle is the result of God's power, God's compassion, God only. And yet at the same time, somehow, God's work works in even our small contributions. We not only get to be the recipients of God's grace and God's miracles, but we are also somehow invited to be a part of that work of miracle in blessing others. We are invited to bring our first fruits in obedience, and then we get to experience that promise and the blessings of leftovers. You know, there's something very, very practical and concrete about the first fruits and leftovers. If you read through the story of Elisha's life and ministry, you will see that he had to deal with kings. He was on the national and international stage. His words and actions had global implications. And yet the five miracle stories in chapter 4, even the raising of a child back to life, were all done to address some immediate, urgent, concrete need of a particular family, a widow facing economic ruin, a couple grieving the loss of their son, a group of people, two groups of people, hungry and in need of a meal. These are not the kind of spectacular miracles that you do to try to impress others and nations. This is not like Elijah, who famously battled with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and brought fire down from heaven. I mean, that kind of miracle makes the front page of all the papers. In contrast, feeding 100, it's not even going to make the back page of the local paper. If miracles were rated on Yelp, this would just get half a star. Yet to those who ate that meal that day, it might have been the difference between misery and joy and perhaps even the difference between death and life. By all means, yes, we need to be involved to change national and international laws to create more equity and justice. Yes, we need to have large and and impressive gatherings of churches and people of faith as a witness. We can and should design expansive plans and and inspiring visions for reaching the world. We ought to have fascinating and interesting discussions about theology, but it doesn't mean that we neglect what's right in front of our eyes. While we're working on the issue of poverty in the abstract, we can still, we must still provide a meal for our immediate neighbors. It's not an either-or. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy*, wrote this, We must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. It's not just about blessing in the future or, or something in the abstract, but here and now. You know, in this, I've always been impressed by former President Jimmy Carter, regardless what you may think of him as a president or his political views. You know, he was involved at the highest levels, right? He dealt with diplomacy at the international level, and yet before and after his presidency, he served at a small local church in his hometown. He taught Sunday school whenever he was home, whenever he was in town. He even signed up to mow the church lawn every six weeks along with the other deacons of the church. A former president. Look around you. There are many ways to be faithful in this season. Bring your first fruits. Whatever acts of faithfulness and ministry that you can do, that you are called to do, whatever blessings that you have received that you can acknowledge God and give him thanks for, Bring it before God and start the process. Begin the process of bringing something that will lead to abundance, satisfaction, and leftovers. We've seen this repeatedly over the years at this church. Whether it was the first fruits of a financial gift, or the first fruits of time given to our youth ministry or to the children, or the first fruits of talents offered in worship service. It may look different than what it looked like 18 months ago. Or it might look the same like our our band today. But the call to be faithful to the people, to the tasks, to the materials that we have been entrusted with remains the same. Be faithful where you are. Start the chain of faithfulness with your first fruits that will lead to abundance and leftovers according to the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that even in these unusual times, you are with us and you provide for us and abundance and leftovers we ask that you would guide us so that we might continue to love one another in all circumstances and that in faith we might bring to you our gifts and start the cycle of abundance and leftovers so that all may be blessed We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.